0: I'm extremely excited to announce a brand new sponsor for the Behind the Shield podcast. That is Transcend. Now, for many of you listening, you are probably working the same brutal shifts that I did for 14 years, suffering from sleep deprivation, body composition challenges, mental health challenges, libido, hair loss, etc., Now, when it comes to the world of hormone replacement and peptide therapy, what I have seen is a shift from doctors telling us that we were within normal limits, which was definitely incorrect, all the way to the other way now where men's clinics are popping up left, right and center. So I myself wanted to find a reputable company that would do an analysis of my physiology and then offer supplementations without ramming, for example, hormone replacement therapy down my throat. Now I came across Transcend because they have an altruistic arm and they were a big reason why the 7X project I was a part of was able to proceed because of their generous donations. They also have the Transcend foundations where they're actually putting military and first responders through some of their therapies at no cost to the individual. So my own personal journey so far, filled in the online form, Went to Quest, got blood drawn, and a few days later, I'm talking to one of their wellness professionals as they guide me through my results and the supplementation that they suggest. In my case specifically, because I would transitioned out the fire service five years ago and been very diligent with my health, my testosterone was actually in a good place. So I went down the peptide route and some other supplements to try and maximize my physiology knowing full well the damage that 14 years of shift work has done. Now, I also want to underline, because I think this is very important, that each of the therapies they offer, they will talk about the pros and cons. So, for example, a lot of first responders and shift work, our testosterone will be low, but sometimes nutrition, exercise, and sleep can offset that on its own. So, this company is not going to try and push you down a path, especially if it's one that you can't come back from. So, whether it's libido, brain fog, inflammation, gut health, performance, sleep, this is definitely one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. So to learn more, go to transcendcompany.com or listen to episode 808 of the Behind the Shield podcast with founder Ernie Colling. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, And as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So, one powerful application is using the program Power Nap, a 20 minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download NuCalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, But also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on NewCalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing. And this week, it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Vietnamese immigrant, U.S. Army Ranger, and law enforcement veteran, Trung Nguyen. Now, as you will hear, Trung has an incredibly powerful story. From leaving Vietnam as a young child, growing up in the gang areas of Chicago, entering the military, his journey into law enforcement, working for an agency with a very high standard then transitioning to one with a low standard, organizational stress and betrayal, the frustration of a driven first responder trying to thrive in a toxic environment, his transition out, we go home, and so much more. Now, as with any conversation, the goal of this is to bring solutions to problems, but sometimes we have to drag them out of the shadows, and Trung does a phenomenal job with that. Now, before we get to this conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Trung huynh Enjoy. Well, Trung, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast, but secondly, there's a, as an element of synergy because I literally tripped over the documentary, and then for some reason, you came across my social media feed right around that same time. So this was obviously serendipitous to, to have this conversation today, so I want to welcome you to the show.
1: Oh, thank you, sir. I heard a lot of good things about you from Kelsey and a bunch of uh, other great individuals that I met during my uh, Harvard speaking event.
0: Yeah. that's So again, that was, I think that was where, where it came across. I think you guys were speaking side by side and I was like, wait a second, that's the guy from the, the, the Amazon selection I just saw. So I'm very, <laughs> very excited to hear the story. So where on planet earth are we finding you today right now? I am uh, in Katy, Texas.
1: Good old Texas.
0: Brilliant. Well, I know that your story doesn't begin in Texas. So let's start at the very beginning then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings?
1: Yeah, my family and I were born in uh, Vietnam, or it was post-war. Uh, a lot of families were struggling, uh, dealing with, you know, communism and the North overtaking the South. And they came in and they ravaged a lot of vil- villages, uh, towns uh, coming in there. And it happened to my father too, you know. Uh, I didn't know my father really because I was so young. But they went into his house and they took his gold and you know took his money. And th- they were doing that a lot because you know it's a communist regime and they, they, they felt like they that was uh, owed to them. And uh, my my family grew up in poverty for a very 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 long time. Uh, my mom wanted a better life for us. And you know when the when the United States. Intervene in that war, she learned about America and what it stood for. And she wanted that type of uh freedom, that type of choice for her kids. So she literally left. Uh, she told her parents and she told my dad, she's like, Hey, I'm taking the kids. We are fleeing uh Vietnam to try to make our way to the United States. And my brother. Half brother at the time uh wanted to go to Viet- uh to the United States first so that he can get like a foothold uh so that when we arrive, that uh you know, we have a place to stay. He kind of kind of understood the lay of the ground and whatnot. Uh unfortunately, he crossed by sea in a boat about approximately 70 to 80 people. And uh, pretty much every single person died except two people. And my brother was one of them. They died from uh, starvation. They died from uh, sickness and disease. And I, I, my from what I was told, it was only like a 70 something year old lady and a very young girl that survived in that boat. So my brother uh, wanted a better life. And, and that's the thing with, uh, uh, you know, people who are, come from war-torn countries like that. They they want the freedom. They want a, a better way of life, a better, uh, you know, to to do better. And they will cross vast, vast oceans to try to achieve that. And many have died during that travels. And um my family, uh my mom literally mustered $10 to our name. I mean, that was from like my my her her brothers and sisters, her uh her mother, they gather her 10 approximately 10 US dollars. And we made our trip. And before we could make it to America, we ended up in um, the Philippines and we stayed there for a year and they were in processing us. We we're at FOP Freedom. Uh, I I don't remember much that at that point because I was around like two years old, but from bits and pieces and from what the story that my mom and, and my sister told me, it was just uh, you know a lot of suffering. There wasn't enough food to go around. They put us in like little encampments uh, and, she, and they tried, and my mom and my sisters and I survived for that year before we just uh, get, went to our voyage to the United States, where we landed in Chicago.
0: I want to go back for a moment because uh, I had two lamb on the show. I know that you guys are friends and army Green Beret here in America, but another immigration story from Vietnam around the time of the conflict. When you talk to your mother, because obviously you were too small to remember. What does she story tell as far as how Vietnam was when she was younger and then what she experienced when this war
1: broke out in her country? She said Vietnam was right now. Vietnam is very prosperous, right? Because there's a lot of tourists, but back then it wasn't. Uh, There was a lot of occupations from different countries that tried to take over Vietnam. And she grew up uh, very poor and she was just she suffered a lot. Uh, During the war, they suffered even more, Uh, you know, traveling wasn't at um, you you can't travel during when there was like a war breaking out down the south. So it was it was very tough for her in in that environment, trying to stay alive, trying to make sure uh, my grandmother, my grandfather, her brothers and sisters, everybody had food on the table. And she she was a very strong woman. I think that I, you know, I look up to her a lot. And that's where I, I gathered a lot of my strength is her resilience to be able to withstand all of that, all the suffering, what she had to endure to make sure that the family had food on the table. We saw a parallel to withdrawal
0: from Vietnam again in Afghanistan a couple of years ago. Um, And I've had people on the show who have told, you know, story told about what's happened to Afghani or Afghan, excuse me, men and women post-conflict, especially if they were discovered to be helping us. What was happening in Vietnam when we
1: withdrew then to the people that were loyal to the South? Um, Same issue, you know, uh, some of them got to come to America and some of them got into the hands of the Viet Cong. They end up in prison camps. Uh, I knew stories of um, my, when my mother redated somebody. He was a captain in the uh, the Southern Vietnam Army, Southern Vietnamese Army, and they put him in a prison camp because of what he stood for with the Americans, and uh, he suffered a lot. And that, that's the, that's the same situation that happened in Afghanistan has literally happened in the past with uh, the Vietnamese people, is the lucky few got out on Hueys and, and on airplanes and the majority didn't. And they just had to stay there and, and suffer the constant questions and obviously public execution. The, the, the you know, the North Vietnamese would do that. Uh, they would then rape pillage and whatnot, the, the towns and whoever they can capture, they bring them to prison camps. And I, and it's really sad because uh, when I, uh, God rest his soul, he, he passed away, but, you know he told me a story once and he was you sitting down, I sent down there. I was like, you know, how does how is the war, I mean, you know, the war, post-war, and what happened to you affect you is like, you know, during the prison camps, they treated us like animals, like we couldn't stand to pee. They made us all sit down and pee because that's degrading to men. And he never uh got accustomed to standing to peeing. He said that till this day I still sit down and pee. So I just felt like you know the the psychological warfare and the physical um, torment that they went through it really affected a lot of these uh, p- people.
0: I think it's important for us to hear these stories, whether it's the actual state of the country that a lot of these men and women and children are trying to flee, but also the. The, you know the crucible that they go through to get to this country whether it's walking hundreds of miles whether it's risking life and death on on a you know a, a tube coming from Haiti or whatever it is because for me as an immigrant in a country that was founded on immigration i feel like there's a, a very anti-immigrant rhetoric by certain people that is extremely dangerous when you actually look at how incredibly fortunate we are in the us the absolute terror that a lot of these people are trying to flee, you know, so of course you just don't open the floodgates, but I think, you know, we've lost some of the compassion for some of the, uh, the tyranny and, and terror that a lot of these people are physically trying to bring their children away from.
1: It's very true. And you, you know, you know, the saying it doesn't affect you until it happens to your doorstep. Right. And I think that's what, you know, in America, a lot of people who are born here, they, they get comfortable they get used to living in their in, in their bubble you know like everything is now instantaneous you can order pizza on your uh, uh, app on your phone you can you can order alcohol i mean everything is like creature comforts galore then we forget we kind of forget like the a lot of the world is still suffering a lot of the world are they can't. they don't even have fresh water to drink they have to walk miles to a well to get water when we have it, like literally in our homes, we can just walk to the sink and get, uh, you know, filter water. And we, we, we tend to forget that. And you're right. And we should have more compassion in life uh, for others. You know, we, we, uh, a lot of, a lot of people take living here for granted. And that's why something I always practice is gratitude, having gratitude for having a roof over my head, food in my stomach, clean, fresh water, the ability to chase my dreams every single day. And if I wanted to till tomorrow, or even right now to be a, a nurse, I can literally apply to school and do that. A lot of people around the world don't have that opportunity that they can just pick up on the whim and, and, and pursue their dreams and their goals.
0: Absolutely. I think that's the thing I had when I first moved here was there is that element of the American dream. You know, and to me, it was you know a roof over your family's head and maybe a little bit of land to grow some vegetables and have chickens, you know very, very oldie worldly, but that is at its core when I moved to the u s it was four thousand square foot houses, winnebago's jet skis, and I'm like where's where's <laughs> the original dream gone, and I think we need to refine that necessity versus luxury. Yeah, this is an amazing place where you can. I mean, you know, I was a, an American firefighter, and now we're having a conversation as a podcaster. You know, how many yeah. people in Syria or Gaza at the moment could pursue any of those? They 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 just can't. So gratitude, I think, is so important, and reminding ourselves that the material stuff that we're bombarded with that we're supposedly supposed to have to be happy is yeah. all superfluous. But you know, the real core hierarchy of needs. We are so
1: so lucky to have those almost guaranteed here. Absolutely, gratitude is huge. Gratitude is huge. Just one thing I would I would tell the viewers: you know, practice gratitude every every moment that you wake up. You know, uh, you're alive. And when people ask me how are you doing, I always tell them I'm doing great. I'm blessed. God is giving me another day to chase after my dreams. Not a lot of people have this opportunity, and don't let it go to waste because time is fleeting.
0: Absolutely. With that being said. Young Vietnam, Vietnamese boy comes to America. You didn't find yourself in Bel Air originally. So, talk to me about growing up in Chicago.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, when we came to America, you know, we were an immigrant family and we didn't get placed in the best area. Obviously, we didn't get to choose. And they placed us in a Section 8 homes. And I grew up in the inner cities of Chicago uh, for the uh, majority of my. Uh, youth to my teens, and we grew around. I grew up around drugs, violence, gangs. It was constant. Uh, being so young and, and being placed in, in that type of environment, me personally, I thought that was the norm, right? Because I didn't know any better. I didn't know uh, uh, what good living was, or you know what you're supposed to have. I, I was just here in, in, in the states, and I, I was just happy. Uh, but you know, as I got older, I started seeing starting to start to process the good and bad and understanding that I was like, oh my God, this place is pretty insane. So with that exposure, obviously,
0: you know, you're the other end of a, not only a military, but law enforcement career. When you look back, talk to me about the, the criminal element that you were surrounded by. And then let's kind of unpack the, the input, excuse me, the, the impact, the drugs were having on that environment that you grew up in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like they always say, you know, you the people you hang out with is how, how you um, end up with, right. So show, show, show me your five friends and I'll show, I'll show you your future. And I was just hanging out with inner city kids. And, you know, I, I thought that was the norm. Uh, you know, when we were hanging out in the streets and seeing all these violence and these gang members, you know, they, they would come up to us like, Hey kid, you know, they'd be like, Hey, don't trust the police. You know, they're the bad guys. You know what I mean? Fuck, fuck five Oh, that's what they used, they used to call them five Oh, and all that. And we thought like, Oh my gosh. So these guys are the evil people, Like, you know, like, don't talk to them, don't interact with them and whatnot. And so seeing that and being around that, I grew up first with a, with a, you know, with a perspective that po- the police were bad and, and, you know, seeing people on drugs and all that, I thought that was normal. Like seeing, seeing somebody that's smoking crack or seeing somebody that's overdose on the streets, I, I thought that was just normal day uh, living in, in, in the United States. Cause that's all I knew. And I think that all changed for me that w- one day when I was playing basketball in the corner, with a bunch of my, my friends were just hanging out and it was late. And this patrol car pulled over, pulled up and I was like, oh shit. You know, like these, these guys are about to do something to, to us, you know, and, and this officer stepped out the car and he was like, Hey, my name is officer such. Uh, I wish I remembered his name. He he was very, very genuine. He came up to his, like, hey, this is the beat I work. Uh, this is usually the time I work. I just want to let you know this neighborhood is not, you know, it's it's very dangerous for you to be out this late. Uh, you should be inside. Uh, you know, here's my business card. If you guys never need anything at all, do not hesitate to call me. You know, I, I'll pick up the phone. And I'll help you any way I can. And that really touched me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, this copper really could have just drove by and said, fuck these kids, right? excuse my language, but, uh, but he, but he, he didn't, he literally took the time out to get out of the car, do community policing and really approached us. And was really sincere. And that touched me so much. I was like, dude, this guy, he didn't have to do this, but he did. And I kind of already, I planted a seed like, man, this might, this might be something I want to do. And as I got older and I started seeing what the police was about and what they were doing uh, to catch these guys on the streets and put them in jail and, and I was witnessing like what these gang members were doing to the neighborhoods, how they were destroying uh, the place that we're living by by bringing violence and, and drugs and, and all this to it. and I, and I saw what the cops were doing. I was like, maybe the cops aren't the bad guys. Maybe you know these guys who are saying that they were are the ones that are really out here trying to do wrong
0: when you're telling that story i think of the term confirmation bias and i think it's you know huge at the moment we'll get into obviously your experiences at the end of your career and that particular city that you worked in but when you're portraying uh an image that cops are bad which sadly we're seeing a lot on media at the moment but that's a distorted view but if you grow up in you know Compton in the 1980s you know there was a kind of war going on between you know a lot of the gangs and law enforcement and if you were a young child growing up in that i can see how your perception would be distorted but you've just kind of underlined the the power of smashing that confirmation bias by all the good cops being out there with the community policing element and how important it is if you are a good police officer which is you know most of them that if you can actually insert yourself back into the community you start to shatter the myths that have been told, even by you know, either by maybe some of the criminal element that you've grown up around, and or more recently what you're seeing on your screens.
1: Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. And I think that a lot of coppers, to this day is something they shouldn't lose. You know, don't don't forget why you started. Don't forget why you you know you you rose your right hand. You know, it's it's not for a paycheck. It's not for the money. It's because you believe in what you're doing and don't lose that a lot of cops get jaded after years of service you you got to sit back and remember your why and why you started and the the people the lives that you help because you could you could end up very much helping someone uh, a kid l- like me that you affect his change in his perspective and and his his trajectory tr- towards what he wanted to do later down the line you never know you never know what, how many lives you touch and in what aspect so, don't lose that fight. I think it's very important.
0: A huge common denominator of a lot of the guests that have been on that are obviously doing very well now—that's why they're on here. Um, not that everyone has to be doing well, but you know, they, they've become a good person. That's a common denominator for the guests. Is a mentor. Now it could be a third-grade female history teacher. It could be you know a wrestling coach. It could be anything, but it's that individual that steers someone down a better direction now you grew up around a lot of these gangs you talk about it in a documentary i mean you're surrounded by multiple different gangs when you look back up to kind of prior to enlistment who was some of the mentors in your life that that sent you down a positive path rather than the gang life that you were surrounded by
1: you know growing up i was trying to uh, seek that father figure because i never had a father uh, hung out, I uh, hung out with the wrong crowd for a long time. I thought I, you know, that was cool. Then when I found out it, it wasn't really, and I'll be honest, with you, one of my biggest mentors is God. He's the one who really changed my life. You know, I, I grew up a Buddhist because my mom was Buddhist, and um, when I found God, it really changed my life because you know I was like, I talked, I was like, hey, I, I, can't, I don't want to go down this path. I don't want to. Uh, end up like a lot of these individuals. I, I really want to change my life. I and mean, he helped me. My pastor helped me. One of my uh, teachers in school helped me. And then obviously that officer, I kept in contact with him for a little bit. And he helped me too. Those were my mentors. Those were the ones that kept me straight to to go down uh, the path that I eventually went to during my wanting to enlist. And the the choices of me wanting to enlist is really because of my, my mother's best friend, her son. He was a lieutenant in the army, and he just graduated Ranger School. And uh, I got sent a VHS at the time of you know Ranger School, and I watched it, and then that really sparked something. I mean, at the time there was no internet; internet wasn't prevalent back then, right? Uh, so you have to go to Barnes and Nobles and whatnot to do your research on on whatever you wanted to do, and that's what I did. I, I read on the lineage of the Rangers, and that was something I I always I wanted to do. I was like, man, this is badass. These guys are badass. Uh, you know, this country has given me so much I wanted to give back. So that's how I really, that really started the path in my enlistment.
0: Now I know nine eleven like so many people on here was a pivotal moment. So you had the seeds planted, but you were young at the time about ranger school. Talk yeah. to me about nine eleven and then how you ended up enlisting.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, again, you said mentors and I, I, I took cop for a long time. One of, one, one of the instructors was my mentor he he served in the Korean army, uh, and in, in, in a special forces unit and, uh, you know, being around people like that, instilling discipline in me and, um, uh, what this country has given me the opportunity to pursue. I, after nine 11 kicked off, I, I was, uh, finishing Hapkida. I went to my sister's, uh, store cause I wanted to help her out and everybody was like, in awe, like glued to this TV. And it was, uh, you know, they were showing the uh, the incident in New York. And at that time, one of the towers are, was already on fire. And when I got there, literally 10 minutes later, another airplane hit the second tower. And I was like, oh, shit. You know, and when I was driving to Hapkido, Hal Stern was on air and he's saying, oh, yeah, one of the plane, hit the antenna, and jokingly, I guess, because, you know, he didn't understand the the, the seriousness of the incident. Then uh, when I got there to the shop and I saw what the hell what the heck was happening and and they confirmed there was a terrorist uh, incident that, that occurred. And I was just like, that, that right there set, set basically the nail, hit the last nail to the coffin. I was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to enlist in the army, you know? And I didn't tell my mom because she, she I was, One of her favorites growing up, and she wanted to baby me. She's like, Yeah, go be a lawyer, go be a doctor, go be a pharmacist. You know, she didn't want me to like go out there, but I always grew up being hands on, very physical, going out there, playing in the dirt, playing softball, playing soccer, staying out late, you know, doing all those things. And I knew inside me that, you know, working the desk was something that was not something I wanted to do. And after seeing that video and what happened with 9 11, I made the decision like, I'm going to enlist and I'm going to go down this pipeline to become an army ranger so that I can fight for my country.
0: Now you mentioned hapkido. what other sports were you playing and how did you prepare for not only the military, but ranger school specifically?
1: Uh, So I hapkido. was, I was always in the martial arts because I grew up liking Bruce Lee. I mean, who didn't, right? I mean, Bruce Lee, I saw enter the dragon and all that's like, Oh man, I want to be a martial artist. So there was something that I wanted to do and pursue because I, I liked the discipline that's involved in that, right. Cause for you to excel in such a uh, art, you have to be consistent. You have to be disciplined. And I was just one of those kids that wanted to play any sports I can get my hands on because I, I just had so much amped up energy. Uh, so uh, for preparing for range to become a ranger, to going through R.I.P. because it was called R.I.P. at the time Ranger and Doctoring program before it's called R.A.F.S. Now, uh, I I literally went to Barnes and I I looked up what what it consists of and I literally trained myself. I just ran all I ran all the time. I, I did push ups. I did sit ups. I prepared myself as much as possible because I understood because uh, r- if you go right now, if you go on on the internet, there's plenty of uh, p- apps and websites that prepares you for special operations. Back then, there wasn't anything like that, and I think it's, it's it's one of the most important things for anybody who wants to be successful in anything they want to do in life. Is when you figure out what you want to do, and you figure out the standards of that course or that job or whatever, you meet that standard and you exceed it. And that's the one thing that was like ingrained into me through my uh, martial arts training. So I didn't want to be like, hey, I'm just going to sit back, sign a contract and hope I pass Ranger school or, or, or Ranger and program. Right. I knew that it was, it was hard. I knew that the fail rate was high. I knew that not everybody was going to pass. So I was like, if I really wanted to take this serious and if I really want to walk down this path and if I really want to fight for my country and be with one of the most elite units, fighting units in, in the United States Army in, in history, then I better freaking prepare myself. So I took the time, the due diligence to train myself so that when I left the boot camp, I was well prepared ahead of time from my peers.
0: So you watched the attack on the towers, which was a Saudi hiding in Afghanistan, but you found yourself in Iraq. So first we'll get to the actual deployments. You detail a lot of the the combat on the documentary, so I won't drag you down that, The, the the question I always like to ask our veterans that have seen combat is this. It's a two-part question. And I'll preface it every time by saying, when we watch the television, it's either a very pro-war rhetoric, kill them all, let God sort them out, stack bodies, or it's very anti-war, they're all baby killers. And in the middle are the men and women that we send, arguably children, overseas to fight for our country. So regardless of the politics, again, the preface that was, you know, disconnected because you're in Iraq, not Afghanistan. Um, regardless of the politics, was there a point where you realized that there were atrocities happening, there were horrific people that did need to be taken care of in Iraq when you landed there?
1: Uh absolutely. Uh with the unit I was placed in, we we had a mission set, you know, we weren't uh, regular infantrymen where we were sent out on patrol or, you know, like, hey, walk this path, make sure like, you know, you clear these houses uh clear this block and whatnot. We had a set mission. We knew uh when you call the ranger regiment, they are placed in the most hostile areas possible or the most dangerous areas possible. And we knew the targets that we're going after were killing soldiers, Marines, airmen, and 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 civilians. So we knew who we were going after. There was no shadow of doubt. They didn't they weren't they weren't like, hey guys, yeah, go out, go out the uh, the uh, you know the gates and just go go for a patrol and hopefully you get into contact, right? No, it was like, hey, these are the these are the individuals we're going after. This is what they've done. Uh, this is the last time uh, their cell phone was pinged in this area, and this is we need to get them now. So I I knew every time we went out the gate, every time we went out there, the wire or whatever the hell you want to call it, that we were out there chasing dudes that were killing or hurting. Or, or, or just being a t- uh, terrorizing that, that part of town. So there was, without a shadow of a doubt, in my mind, the, the, the individuals that were tasked to go after were not good people.
0: So the other side of the two-part question is this. Again, we get a very black and white uh, portrayal of Iraq, Afghanistan. So America is at war with Iraq. We're at war with Afghanistan, where the reality is the people within those countries are being terrorized by these extremists and we never hear about kindness and compassion on the battlefield. So when you think back to that time, were there moments of kindness and compassion that you remember witnessing from either the indigenous people or some of the men and women that you serve with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, you know, we, I, saw, I saw a lot of servicemen and women, you know, give out aid to the Iraqi people, uh, food, food, water and whatnot. Uh, and I saw the same thing from the Iraqi people where they, they try to help out and point out the bad guys. Cause Hey, like any war not every single pe- there's no way everybody's a bad guy, right? There's good civilians who live there and they just want to live a, a good life and, 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 and just, you know, beyond their just be normal and live a good life. And they will they want to point out the bad guys and a lot of times they, they can't because they're they're in fear to, fear of them uh you know uh, being attacked. But there are individuals like inter- interpreters, the Iraqi interpreters were such great help to to us. They 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 would risk life and limb to help us to try to capture the the, the bad guys, and I think that was so powerful, you know. They they wanted to, to Free their country. Uh they wanted they wanted to destroy evil and they they were willing to risk everything to do that.
0: Absolutely. I think it's we don't hear enough of that. I mean, I've heard, you know, army vets, you know, taking care of the indigenous animals in Iraq, Afghanistan, you know. I mean, the like you yeah. said, the the courage, not only of the interpreters, but you know, the Iraqi Afghan, you know, freedom fighters that fought alongside us. That sadly, you know, a lot of them were left behind when we we pulled out. But I think it's important that we hear that side as well. So thank you
1: with the SF dudes doing hits on, on, on buildings simultaneously where we're doing hits on other buildings. I mean, they, they, they want to fight for their country too. They, they want to, you know, be, have that freedom. And like you said, they're, they're willing to risk life and limb for that. And they, they, a lot of those guys are, uh, you know, they, they're, they're heroes, but they're, they're never really spoken about, right? Like the SF unit, the Iraqi special forces unit out there right now is still getting some to this very day. They're still out there capturing all the, the, these little terrorist groups that are still in Iraq. Uh, but we don't hear about it anymore. And, you know, they, they are as much of uh, our, our heroes as we are.
0: Absolutely. Well, speaking of, of you know, the, the cost of war, I know there was a pivotal moment where you lost two friends during one of the, you know, the deployments that you had. So we don't have to dive into details, of course, but talk to me about you know, the, the realization of losing brothers and how that impacted you and caused you not caused you, but became a strong reason for you to transition out of the military.
1: Yeah. You know, war affects everybody differently. I talked about that in a documentary, you know, uh, some people, uh, they, they can withstand it longer than others. And some, it just takes a big toll on them. And we, I did lose two friends, uh, there, one of them was our team leader. One of them was our squad leader, uh, Brem and Baraza, and these guys were the epitome of a, a ranger. What you think a ranger was? You know, uh, Barraza was like a six foot, two hundred stout dude who was tactically proficient, who was a outstanding leader. Like when you see him, it's like you see you look at him, you're like dude, Baraza is a beast. And there's Brem, who is like five six. Uh, a, a more, a, you know, not that big of a dude, but he was a ranger through and through, and they were both amazing leaders, tacticians, and and you know uh that's the one thing that I would like to thank the Ranger Regiment for was the outstanding leaders that I had the opportunity to serve on. They have, have you know, into the man I am today without the, the the lessons be who I am today, and the and I have those two to pay for, uh, you know, to, um, really contribute for, for me, for my success, for how, how I operate my mindset wise. And, uh, when losing them, you know, you, you think at that time, we haven't lost anybody yet in our company. And those were the two first individuals that we lost in our company. Uh, besides when I first got into the regiment, you know, by the time I got there, Pat Tillman, was already been killed. So the gym was dedicated to Tillman. And I met his brother, uh, Kevin Tillman, during our uh, EIB, which is an expert infantry badge course where we earned our EIB. And <clears throat> the, that was the last time I've heard of somebody in the Ranger Regiment and uh, 2nd Ranger Battalion that was killed was Pat Tillman. So, you know, we thought we were invincible. I thought, man, we were we were kicking ass. And I... Yeah, this is a, this is awesome. No one can no one can mess with us, you know. And when we lost those two, it affected everybody because those guys those guys were squared away. Those guys were studs, but everybody knew there was a mission that has to be completed. Right? Uh, they, we mourn, they mourn, but they they knew the next day, the next following day, it was business as usual. That that we had to go back out there. They had to go back out there and bring the fight to the enemy. And, and losing them. And and going to their funeral and their wake and and saluting their picture, I I I I, I was just I was just lost for words. I was emotionally wrecked. It, it uh, you know, the whole everything that we saw up to that point combined with the loss of these individuals really, really did a toll on me. It really did it affected me and i and I, I for a long time i i strayed away from that And thinking like oh you know i'm a guy i'm a ranger i'm a tough dude you know you know thinking about you know depression and 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 all that uh, ptsd which wasn't even called at the time was for for, for um excuse my turns bitches you know you always want to put that face up with your other boys you know going to going out to drink with them and be like yeah that doesn't affect me but you can tell there's certain individuals that are, that are affected by war And I I reached a turning point where I was like, you know, I I can't stand, uh, this this is too much for me. Um, My mom needed my help. So that's when I decided not to re-enlist and head back home uh, to Chicago. And uh, I did. I head back home and I tried the college route for about a year. And it wasn't for me. I, you know, being in that classroom with those young kids and going from what I experienced to that classroom. It's just, they, they didn't understand. I had no one to talk to. I couldn't talk to my my mom. I couldn't talk to my sisters. And at the time I already had a, uh, I have a, a little brother from, from her, you know, her, her boyfriend uh, at the time. So I couldn't tell my little brother anything either. And I was just dealing with my own inner demons. There was no outreach group. There was no one I can talk to. And I just, you know, hung out in my room uh, for almost a year straight. I, I stopped working out. I, I stopped, you know, my friends called me. I never picked up their phone calls. I didn't want to go out. I didn't know that what the hell was wrong with me. You know, I felt suicidal for a little bit and, you know, I thought alcohol would be something that would uh, cure or help me, but it was like a, a small bandaid and a gaping wound. And then when I realized, like I, I sat back and I I started to talk to God again, you know, and I was like, Hey, I need your help, you know, and going, going back to church and um. Going back to church and and just, you know, working, working out my internal issues and understanding like a lot of the the things I went through or seen or or there's really nothing I could have done about it. You know, uh, and when I came to terms with that, I I got better. And I I realized like, hey, you know, you didn't make it this far far in your life just to, you know, take your life or, or become a piece of shit. So. That's when I decided, like, hey, I'm gonna pursue my other dream, which was to become a police officer.
0: With the kind of mature lens that I have now, after seven years of these conversations and a you know a, a career in the the fire service myself, it makes so much sense. You know, you had such a sense of purpose. You had such tight knit camaraderie and brotherhood in the the Ranger Battalion that you work with you know, you saw combat, you had shared suffering, you had loss, and then you go back to the States where no one understands what you've done. You don't have your tribe anymore. People are probably bitching about stuff that's so insignificant compared to the things that you've had to see and do. And I think that you've just mirrored what a lot of people experience when they transition, even from the military or from the first responder professions.
1: Yeah, James, you hit it right in the head. I lost purpose. I was in a, a unit that was operating at such a high level. Then that when I left that and I came back to civilian world, you know, there's no more shared suffering. You know, can what I am I going to sit here and lie to you and say the re- ranger regiment was uh, sunshine and rainbows? Absolutely not. It was the hardest freaking thing I've ever done in my goddamn life. But it, 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 that that shared suffering and 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 what I went through really molded. me who i i was and when i left that and, and then even now when i left uh left this police uh job you know realm career there is no more shared suffering i always tell people like you know when you do those type of jobs yeah there's shared suffering now there isn't You're, there's no one to carry that weight but yourself and I, I i have to carry that weight up on by myself for a very long time now you said you you found
0: God. Talk to me about that journey. You already had a relationship with God. How did you navigate yourself back to this spiritual communication that was healing for you specifically?
1: I I picked up the uh the Bible. I prayed. Prayer is a powerful thing. And you know, I prayed and I and I talked to him and you know, I went back to church and that really helped me. Uh, because I found someone else that I can speak to and I knew he, he could understand me because he's, he's, you know, God almighty, he knows, he sees, he experienced everything. Right. So through, through the power of prayer and, and, and really sharing my, my suffering with him, it it, it lifted a big boulder off my uh, shoulder and really. Gave me purpose again, and he gave me purpose again, and really like, hey, what the other dream that you wanted to do? Remember? And I, I was like, yeah, it's time. It's it's time to to get back into it. So,
0: brilliant. So, as you said, you were talking to God. You know, you are reminded of your second purpose, which is your journey into law enforcement. You initially find yourself in a small department in Illinois, craving real policing you transition over to california after putting an app in for chicago Now i know i'm kind of kind of going past some of your life's journeys but i want to specifically get to this so talk to me about the level of training the expectations the attrition rate for lapd when you joined that department
1: at the time i joined it was about 2011 and uh this was my second police academy I went to. Uh, obviously, the first one was with the suburban department in Illinois. And, you know, it was okay. It wasn't that bad. It was, from what I've went through in the military, it was walking a park, really, to be honest with you. But then I went over to L- LA. <clears throat> they treated the, uh, at the time, I don't know how things are now, but when I was going through, I mean, they they weren't playing, right? I mean, you, there were standards. You, they tr- It was like, a they treated like a paramilitary organization, the males had to shave their heads. The women had to wear their hair in a tight bun. Uh, we had to double time everywhere. Uh, there were standards to meet, and if you don't meet that standards, you're going to get dropped without without a question. And we started, you know, with a class of over 100. We didn't, we graduated around like I would say 60 something officers. I mean, they 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 weren't playing. They're like, hey, you know, and the and to really drive that home, one of our guide on. Our guy is the guy who got to got carry the flag during, you know, our, our academy class. And he was a former Marine and he went, he passed all the way to, uh, the, uh, badge ceremony where we got our badge and we, we got pinned. We literally had four weeks left. And the way LAPD does is it's like, Hey, there's scenario based training that you have to pass and you get two tries. Your, your partner is the instructor. So there's no sneaky peaky like I got another uh, you know a candidate next to me who's smarter than me, and I'll just like give him or her all the the, the duties that the the criteria that you have to meet. No, it's literally you, and you're put in a spot. And he failed twice, and they and they got rid of him. And you know, and one and the senior instructor was in the class because he saw our class was like really, um, you know like up in arms and, and, and really sad and, and angry. At what, what happened? Cause that guy was a squared away guy. He was squared away. You know, he did everything that was asked him to that point. And we we're like, and we express our opinions to the senior instructor. And he's like, Hey, we have standards here. If we drop the standards, if we lower the standards, that means that anybody else will get that uh, chance. And we're, we're not like that. And, you know, when he told us that it just, it made sense. So yeah, LAPD was a legit academy. I had so much fun. Um, but it was it was it was hard. It was hard. And and I I was glad it was hard because then you get a better trained officer, right? You're not getting the bottom of the barrel that's just pushed through the pipeline because they need bodies, they need they need uh numbers. Cause that's when it gets dangerous, especially now. We will touch on that, James, about current policing right nowadays and what the heck is going on. But Back then, in 2011, there were standards, and people still wanted to be the police. And uh, yeah, I, I and I had a chance to work for that department. It was great. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to join LAPD SWAT because being on SWAT was something I always wanted to do. That was one of my uh, lifelong goals. Uh, but my mother needed my help back home. She was getting old, and she didn't want to move to uh, she, oh, California because she didn't have any friends here. She didn't know the way around. So I had to suck it up and come back home
0: before we hit record i talked about how your journey mirrors mine in certain ways obviously not with deployments in ramadi for example but uh, you know but but the the um first responder journey i got hired by anaheim california just uh, south of you guys and again it was the same exact thing the bar was so high and we lost 25% of each probationary class in the first year through attrition it was and they literally would say look you're not a bad firefighter You're just not the right fit for Anaheim Fire Department. And so, you know, people will go and work for other agencies. And that was, you know, this incredibly high standard. Now, I want to get to the contrast of, of the other side of it. But before we do, talk to me about with this kind of lens that you have now, how that high level of training and standards factored into some of the calls that you had wearing an
1: LAPD uniform. Absolutely. Absolutely. It matters. The hard training matters because you heard this many times, right, James? You don't rise to the level of occasion. You fall to the level of your training. And if you have shit training and if your department doesn't give a crap, rat's ass about you and you don't give a rat's ass about you and you're in this uh, your profession of uh, the professional that you, you you claim to be. And then when you meet something that was extremely difficult to deal with, well, a heart an adversity, you're, you're just going to suffer. And and hopefully you don't end up causing uh, someone else's life or your life in in the process. Uh, And that's the one thing that I loved about the Ranger Regiment is because when we train, our level of training is so fucking hard. It's way harder than war, in my opinion. And it's made that way for a reason. Because if they would do us a disservice, if they trained us at this level – and we went to war, and it was at this level. Then we're just like, oh shit, right? Now this is a big gap that we have to try to catch up to or, or try to survive. But if our training is at this level and war is at this level, then we're like, this is easy day, because I've suffered more in Yakima in in, in oh, the state of Washington out there in the field with uh, not not eating, staying up all day and night, doing uh, um, firing and maneuvering you know, live fire and CQB and all that than I did over in Iraq. And when I went to Iraq and I went to war and I did all that, in, in a sense, it was not that hard because what I dealt with in training was way more tough. And I was, a I was used to that. I was, I was able to uh, exceed what was uh, asked of me out into the real world. And the same thing applies with the police room. It's the same thing that applies to being a firefighter. It's the same thing that applies to any one of these jobs where you raise a right hand and you sign a blank check. It's like you have to exceed the standards in training constantly because you never know when you're going to go out there and face whatever adversity is out there because we already know, you know, both of us being from a, a first responder type of uh, a career that you go from zero to 100 just like that. One minute, you're having a cup of coffee. The next minute, shots fired, active shooter, uh, uh, hostage situation that you have to respond to. Now, if you you get there and your training sucks ass and the last time you shot was an annual qual or the last time you did some kind of defensive tactics or any kind of training was the police academy, shame on you. And I've seen both spectrum. I've seen cops who were squared away. When I went through a, a, a call of I remember vividly one of the calls I did during LAPD in the Olympic division was they 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 went after the stolen vehicle. This guy just, you know, it was did a drive by shooting. Uh, the patrol caught us, uh, seen him speeding th- through uh, that part of town. They chase sued. We end up uh, they, he they end up chasing his vehicle. We were listening to the radio. We joined the, the chase. They they came to this neighborhood. They ditched the car and they ran into the city block. Now LAPD at that time they were they they had standards and we trained to that standard. They locked on that city block, so there's no way for that dude to escape. They set up a team. All right, you're you're less lethal. You're lethal. You're 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 going to be the ones uh, with the shield. And we put together a, a team to go look for this guy. And the airship came over the air, and they kind they located like, okay, this individual is in this backyard hiding underneath the shack. And when we got there, they put up, they put together a well thought out plan and we tactically executed to, to standard to take the dude into custody. And he had a pistol and I tased him and he's like, you're, you're less, lethal." you know, I was a new guy attending. He's like, Hey boot, you're less lethal. All right. And this guy's lethal. There's something happening. And I'm hands-on. And we came there, we approached tactically uh, in a safe manner and, and, you know, gave him commands. He didn't, he didn't abide. We, and we did what we had to do. We took him into custody. And, and that is paid dividends to the training that was uh instilled upon us during the police academy. and not only that, but when we got to the department, the ongoing training that we were able to still have and the squared away FTOs that we have that that, that really helped with with the whole spectrum of you know of that of that side of things. So <clears throat> yeah, absolutely it matters. And I've seen it unfold many times, many, many freaking times hitting a, hitting a house in Iraq. Explosive breach, entering, knowing your points of domination, knowing what you know, when to step into the kill zone, knowing when to uh, being sharpened up to know not to over penetrate a certain room because of the angle of the room, knowing when to do all this thing. It, it, it all matters because at that time, I didn't think about any of that. It just happens, right? The more you train, the more it becomes second nature. And that's, a, that's the most important thing that anybody who's listening should, should realize that. You want to train. You want to get so good. That's like what Bruce Bruce Lee said, right? Be like water, my friends, right? You don't have to think about punching. You automatically punch. It's the same thing when you're doing anything tactically or anything on the fire side, uh, being, being able to know what tool to take to breach a, a, a door or, or you read the door knowing like, okay, this is what it's going to need to take is because time matters. When things happen and, and seconds count, the more you delay, the more you second guess yourself, the more bad things are going to fucking happen.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, they say, what well, train not to get it right, but train so much that you don't get it wrong. And I think that's that's uh, absolutely the way, and especially the basics. Now, not obviously we're all jack of all trades, master of none, but the basics, which is one of the things I see with Instagram is, you know, people are trying to invent new ways of doing things. It's like, well, just, you know, the basics are there because they work. Of course, you can add tools yeah. to your toolbox, but are you proficient at, picking a ladder up off, off a rig and throwing it on your own and then having to move it. If things change, you know, before you get that down, you don't need to worry about the, you know, the, the fancy stuff. So I agree a hundred percent. You drill the absolute basics that you will lean into, and then you can start adding to your toolbox after that.
1: I'm huge on mastering the basics. Think of high level athletes, Michael Jordan. Dude, who can do crazy layups and dunks and all that? What do you think he practiced when he gets on the court? Layups. He practiced uh, free throws. He practiced the basics and mastering the basics, like you said, James, is huge. If you don't have a foundation to stand upon, it's going to crumble. Everything else is is not going to freak matter if you don't know the basics of your skill set of 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 your of, of your craft. If you're not a master of your craft of the basics, you can't excel and expect to do all the other high speed things you see on social media. Right. But I've seen, uh, you know, uh, the unit guys overseas when they were training, when they're when they're out there on the range, they they don't run fancy drills. They do the basics because they understand the importance of that reload, you know, uh, being able to present your your weapon system, uh, stance, all that. And they're doing basic drills just over and over and over and over and over until, like you said, second nature. Absolutely.
0: Even if you think about the martial arts, Hapkido, I did, I did Taekwondo. When you take your black belt, you start from what you learned in the white belt. Even in your black belt test, you start in mm-hmm. your very first kata you ever did and you work your way up. And I think that's a good kind of analogy. You know, you yep. never, ever forget the foundations that your skills were built on.
1: No, your foundation has to be rock solid. Without it, like like a house built on not a solid foundation is going to crumble. And you have to think of your your craft as the same way. Before you go out there and start trying to do all these high speed things, let's let's work on the basics. Let's let's be so damn good at it that then you're like, okay, I am now ready. Like uh, you know, you probably talked talk to two and you talked about Mo, Mayamoto Musashi towards the end of his life, he picked his choice of weapon was a piece uh, was a wooden stick and he was kicking people's ass with that thing. Why? because he he understood that all these fancy blades and all this fancy things didn't matter anymore. When you come down to when you break down the essence of being a true master of your craft, even with a wooden stick, you can still kick somebody's ass if you are a master of your craft. And he proved that he proven that. And it's, and it's been proven time and time again, what high level athletes with, uh, you know, guys are in CAG guys are in dev group guys are high level. And in, in what they do is they are so good at their craft that it doesn't matter. You know, you can give me a, a, a 1990 M16 with iron sights. I'll still freaking shoot the shit out of that thing. Um, for example, one of our senior guys on SWAT, he went to an FBI instructor uh, course, a uh, uh, pistol course, and every single guy uh, on who went to that course from other teams, uh, Illinois State Police, all these counties, they all had staccatos with red dots, all these Gucci guns. And that guy, our a senior guy, his name is OJ, and OJ, he's a bad motherfucker, by the way. Um, OJ, he came there with a Gen 3 Glock Seventeen iron sights, and he outshot everybody, and he won uh, top shot of the class. And and all the other guys had staccatos, and you name it, any kind of Gucci gun you had, you can imagine with optics, and he outshot them with iron sights with a Gen Three Glock Seventeen. What does that tell you?
0: Diligence and basics. Yes. Beautiful. Well, I come. F- I've started a Hialeah, which was a department just uh, north of miami and they laid such an incredible foundation then i moved to california for a few years yeah, anaheim again i made that 75 percent. i was one of the ones that graduated and again awesome. with my own eyes saw not only the entry-level training but it never stopped i mean we yeah. constantly cut roofs we constantly took doors we constantly pulled hose and threw ladders and did you know the, the medical stuff and and it was just part of the culture you never stop learning then I transitioned back to the East Coast, just like yourself. It was family first, and that's why I went back. We had a little boy, and my my son's mother um, wanted to be back near her family. Oh, what a blessing. Um, and and it was, apart from career-wise, and it broke my heart because I left my dream department, and I chased that same level of professionalism for 10 years. And don't get me wrong, I worked with some great people, especially that next department, even the last one, a few good people despite the department, but the the mediocrity and the um the lack of standards, the lack of almost understanding the why of what we were even doing as a profession, the complacency yeah. was nauseating, and it angered me. I mean, it was really, it was a, one of the creations of this podcast was eventually, well, I'm going to fix it from the outside. But um, knowing where you should be from those first two fire departments to then seeing the other side of the spectrum. I mean, mental health wise was was detrimental on top of everything else. So talk to me, you you've had this amazing bar set now, at LAPD. Talk to me about your transition to Chicago and let's talk about you
1: know the other side of the scale. Oh my God, James, you hit it right in the head and I, I you can relate to what I'm about to speak of. And uh, you know, disclaimer guys, I'm not here to bash on Chicago. This is from my own views of ten years on that department, right? So this is from my experience. It's not like I'm anti-Chicago. I hate Chicago Police Department. Be, serving as a cop is an honorable profession. Doesn't matter what department you serve in, and and I I've worked with great individuals in that department that was square away. But you're absolutely right. My the department, the Chicago Police Department, I had to go through another police academy. So this is my third police academy I went to, and I always treat every single academy like my first. I don't have an ego. I don't think like oh yeah I'm a, I've been a cop for X amount of years. Or, you know, these kids are just off the you know from college or whatever. You know they're they're they don't know shit. I you know no I treat it like I'm, I'm the new guy. But it was very unfortunate the culture that the Chicago Police Department was doing even at twenty even in 2013 before this whole anti truly anti police rhetoric that they were pushing defund the police bullshit. Uh, at the time we, we, we could still be the police, but it was so relaxed. There was no standard. Uh, you walked everywhere. It was like literally like college. Um, you, they'll give you as many tries as you need to pass. You know, there are certain individuals who didn't pass the pistol call, but all of a sudden they train with the instructors and they shot alone. They miraculously passed when they shot like shit with us during our, our, our you know, our qualification. Uh, to a point where there's no way with this X amount of time this individual is going to pass. There is no standards. Uh, they if if you if you wanted to stay, they'll let you stay, right? And and I believe, no matter what profession you do, fire, police, uh, military, there has to be a standard because you're setting your officers, your firefighters, and you, the guys who are serving up for failure right from the beginning. When you make it so fucking easy for them to pass, right? That then when now they're pit out there in in the real world. Now they're out there try, dealing with criminals and killers. Now they're like, oh shit, I am not ready for this because the standards weren't set. And I saw it firsthand with CPD, uh, coppers. When I got to the this like the the, the 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 police academy was a joke. It was a complete freaking joke and i was so disheartened especially with you know the the name chicago police dangerous murder capital of the world uh you know all this stuff but they're not giving these officers the correct training that they, they deserve to go out there to do their jobs and when you when i got there to the district i it, it, the culture was even worse all the old timers sloppy uniform, like when I was in LAPD, your badge had to be shine, your boots had to be shine, your leather belt has to be shine, your uniform better be pressed. And if you're a new guy, you're sitting in the back of the row. they call you boot, you got to go up there to the teleprompter, turn on the teleprompter, do all these things because you're the fucking new guy. I came into Chicago, all the old timers had these worn out leather belts, Maybe one pistol mag, you know, their gun holster is like tilted all the way in the back. Their uniform is sloppy. There was no standards. And that's what they bred. You know, know, the females in in L.A. and the West Coast, you have to put your hair up in in a bun, obviously, because if you uh, wrestle or you get into a, a, a situation with a criminal and they grab your hair, you know, you're already at a disadvantage. In Chicago, they let the females have their hair down. So they they have their hair down, these little ponytails. There was no standard right from the beginning. It was like yeah yeah, yeah whatever kid. And I saw that, and they don't they don't give their officers any training, real life safe life saving training. As in, uh you know, uh the, the the only time that you shot is your annual call. and it was like thirty rounds. That's it. When you get when you hit the streets, every year the Chicago Police Department gives you thirty fucking rounds to shoot. Now, think about that. If you're in a place that the chances of you getting into a violent situation or dealing with violence is so high, and this is the type of training they're giving the officers, it's a detriment to, 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 to them, to the citizens, and to the th- their partners, right? Because then what, ca- what type of officers do you have at that level? Oh, the last time you shot was 30. And you've seen there's a bunch of Instagram videos. TikTok videos of this copper trying to reload trying to clear her pistol that she fr- she freaking forgot how to do which is super embarrassing that was a Chicago police officer that recently showed where she got into a OIS an officer involved shooting and she had a stovepipe that was easily cleared but she she didn't know how to clear it. stuff like that is such a detriment to to, to not only yourself the that the, 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 what you swear the, you' the, when you swear you're you know you raise your right hand to swear upon it being a professional but most importantly, like I stated, the citizens you swore to protect and the officers and, and the academy, we, we didn't we didn't get rifle trained. Uh, if you want to be rifle trained uh, on the streets, you have to go put it in a little application and the wait time, unless you know somebody, a, a fireman instructors not down in the academy, you're probably waiting over a year to even be rifle trained to hit the streets. Right. Um, the defensive tactics they taught there was a joke The you know, like, like stuff that. Doesn't really work, and 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 I I really feel like every police department should train their officers in jujitsu. You have to be proficient because it matters. Being able to take a, a a person into custody as safely and as quickly as possible without wailing your baton at them because that's the last time you trained your baton was in the academy. So you're doing these technique that doesn't work. It looks bad on camera. It looks like you're 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 using excessive force. But if you are, if you're given a, a, a officer and, and their team and their department the proper training so that they can handle themselves professionally, because I, I think a lot of these departments don't realize what that entails. Does it cost money to have your officers trained? Absolutely. But you're saving so much lawsuits. You're saving your department so much uh, face because now when somebody calls the a Chicago Police Department or. CPD officer, they can be like, yeah, I I, I pretty haven't a, have a really good uh, uh uh confidence that the officer who's responding to my call is squared away, is trained very well, then he can handle that situation.
0: I think this is such important important conversations. And again, it's not talking crap about the individuals in the uniform, or at least the ones that are good at their job. And I actually have a lot of respect for anyone who's yep. a good police officer firefighter you know paramedic if they work for a shitty department because they are good despite the department not because of the department one of the big misnomers that i've seen and it seems to be you know maybe behind the the absolute extreme from your positive experience in LA and the negative one in Chicago is Anaheim had the bar really high and when i ch- practice my cepat which is the physical agility test for the fire service I had the humility to go, well, let me practice. I know I'm in great shape. Let me do a practice run in California before I go and test in Florida to make sure that I smash it. And the guy in the testing center goes, you're the only person I've ever met that left Anaheim Fire Department. And I left purely from geography. I didn't want to leave Anaheim. But because their standard was set extremely high. Now, more so now than ever, there's this philosophy, well, if we lower standards, then we'll get more candidates. I argue that's completely the opposite. Not only is it extremely dangerous, but the real firefighters, police officers of the world want to be challenged. That's what's going to get you to line up outside the door. And obviously having support of your department and good training, et cetera. What is your perception of the philosophy that created the, uh, the way that the Academy was the lowering of the standards, um, and the kind of devolution of what was probably an incredible department a few decades prior.
1: I can tell you this. When I I, uh, went to go test with the Chicago Police Department, they put us in the McCormick place because there's over 14,000 people trying to apply to be a police officer. Now, they're lucky to get people to want to do the job. Uh, And and it plays hand in hand uh, with you know, like you said, standards has to be high, right? It's not high anymore. Even then before it was anti-police, but now even worse when, you know, the whole incident with the defund the police and you lose out on good candidates. People who are uh, physically fit and and intelligent, they look at the job of a police officer now, especially like big metropolitan uh, departments that are blue states. They're like, I don't want to be the cop there. Uh, they they tie my hands. Um, they'll hang me out to dry. Uh, I can be the next YouTube sensation. Get sued. Worse yet, go to jail. I'm, I don't. So what are they doing? They're not going to do the job. They're going to go work for the, If they're going to want to be a law enforcement uh, individual, they're going to go work for a three letter agency. And you're like you said, now you're left with scraping the barrel. So how they're gonna to try to fix it. Oh yeah, if they they if they have this criminal record, a couple of these misdemeanors, that's that's okay. Oh, they don't have a college degree, that's okay. Oh, you can't pass a power test, that's okay. We'll work with you, just as long as you don't quit. Then you then you start seeing the pool of candidates come that they're not here for what this job stands for anymore. Because now they're like, oh yeah, well, we can't get candidates. Let's raise the uh salary to make it enticing. Oh, uh, we'll pay for your college or, you know, it'll help you pay for your college tuition. Then what what are you getting? You're getting people not wanting to do the job for the right reasons. Uh, they're in here. They're in it for the money. And the 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 the, the, the quality of candidates is so watered down that is super dangerous. I don't know if you've seen that most recent video, James, of the, the four CPD officers who try to arrest the shoplifter and they couldn't even place him into custody. I did, sadly. Yeah, that to me speaks volumes. You know, they're out of breath. I can tell you, like the, those those coppers there are pretty much rookies, maybe three years on on, on the on on the job, because of where they're where they're located. And usually, like you know, you know how it goes. When you're the new guy you're, or new gal, you're going to be placed in areas that are uh, very dangerous because all the seniority guys bid out and go somewhere else, right? Uh, a little bit safer, what you say? And so those cops have probably had like three to five years on a job. And this is the type of coppers are out there now. And and and, and it's just, it's it's insane. It's it's absolutely insane. Well, you hit
0: on a, a topic I think that most people don't understand, which is the term false economy. And it's the same in the fire service. Um, you know, we are struggling now recruitment-wise. And I think what's happening for us is just as you alluded to, now let's say you're an 18 year old, you know, man or woman, and you're like, I think I'm going to be a firefighter. I think I'm going to be a police officer. And they do an actual diligent Google search on what does a job actually mean, and they start discovering this standards lowering, you know, organizational betrayal, um, you know, all these elements. Then you've got the marriage issues and the mental health problems, addiction, suicide, and then the, they look at the pay, they look at the hours, they look at the mandatory overtime, and then they go, hmm. You know what? UPS is hiring or I've been offered this IT job. And so that's where they go. And this is what we've got to understand is that we, as the first responder professions, have literally hit critical mass where our generation was asked to do more with less over and over and over again. Fire stations were browned out. You know, to me, for example, in law enforcement, the fact that any police officer is sent out on their own in a car is fucking insanity. How we got there nationally, I don't understand. LAPD and some of these two to a car, that should be the gold standard. Less cars, you know, more cars with two, it doesn't matter how many vehicles you have. If two people get out that are well trained, that is an absolute force multiplier on one individual that may or may not resist one person gets out and that other person is bigger, they're immediately on the back foot. So now they're either gonna get murdered or they're gonna you know, forced into drawing their weapon. So we're at the point now where people gotta understand that we are bleeding so much money, as you said, lawsuits, medical retirements, workman's comp, overtime, you name it, there is the budget, but we need courageous leaders to go, enough is enough. We've been bleeding money out the back end our, you know, our brand, to use a corporate word, is completely fucked. So we got to start investing in our people. We're going to put the bar back where it needs to be. We're going to do a hiring. But to get the people to walk through the door, we've actually got to create good working conditions. We're going to start saying we offer this this level of jujitsu, wrestling, judo, whatever. We're going to be doing all kinds of real tactical weapons training. We're going to do, you know, training on on interacting with the public on de-escalation on conversation, you know, physical fitness programs. So when you get out the car, your initial thought might be, I'm not going to run from (laughs) from that guy or that girl. They look like they could kill me. And in a good way, Um, you know, these are the things that we have to do. We can't keep being reactive because we found ourselves literally swirling around the toilet bowl. Now we, as people have said, and this is not scaremongering, if we don't change there won't be any firefighters or police officers to respond to your house anymore. That is where we're at in some of these jurisdictions. So to me, you know, hearing your story, hearing, obviously, I've I've touched on some of my experiences in the past. We've both talked about where there were good departments, where everything was done well. So it's not, oh, everything's crap. It's just the ones that are, you know. That could be the person that's pulling over your teenage son one day who reaches in the glove box to get his driving license, and that person with a one annual qual freaks out and shoots your kid in the head. That's what we're talking about, or stands frozen while someone walks through a school and massacres school children, including your own. So it's not that we're talking about the carpentry world, and now my cupboard, Door is slightly wonky because it's a shit carpenter. When you
1: or I are bad at our jobs, people die. You are one hundred percent, sir. You you hit that in the head, and I think it needs to be realized what's going on. Like you know, let's talk about the one man car thing. It's perception, right? They want more cars out there, so it looks like there's more cops. But you're absolutely right. There should be two to a vehicle, one hundred percent. And not only that, in this day and age, they don't want warriors anymore. And you, you, the, what they're pushing out there in society, and we, we see the trickle effect now. No one wants to be a police. No one wants to do this job. The army just uh, missed their uh, their recruitment by fifteen percent, which is the lowest it's ever been. You know, and wh- what is why? Why? Why is that? It's because of what's being pushed out there nowadays. You know, no one wants to do these professions anymore. You're absolutely right. I can be a UPS driver. Like Chicago, they have um, mandatory like days off canceled because there's not enough cops. I've worked so many days off, so many days that it was supposed to be my days off, but they got it canceled. Oh, it's canceled, it's canceled, and you we just have to show through because there, there's not enough manpower, and there's not enough hires, and there's so many retirees that are retiring, and we see it, you know, and it's and it's 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 frustrating because there are good cops in Chicago. I've encountered many good cops. Uh, the training, I, I saw what has happened there and I decided to go out and seek my own training. I spent thousands of dollars of my own money to go out there and train myself and prepare myself for joining CPD SWAT, you know, and not a lot. Of, and if you know anything about coppers, a lot of them are cheap. They don't want to spend their, their money on tra- their own training. If the department is not going to provide me with the training, I'm not going to go out there and, and spend my own money, which is sad. You're a professional. What if it's your kid that, you know, imagine you go into the cause and that's your kid, that's your mom, that's your sister. Don't you want them to have the best, most well-trained officers to, sh- to arrive to make sure that they're safe? Isn't that what you raise your right hand for? And let's talk about leadership. I mean, in Chicago Police Department, there's something called meritorious promotion, meaning they 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 put like they, they put 15 to 20 percent aside that the commanders and whatnot could put in like, oh, yeah. And back in the days, that was it was done correctly right because there were cops who were running and gunning who were great officers but they suck at uh, test taking so those meritorious promotions like okay john john's a great copper he's out there getting guns he's in the gang he's doing all this high speed thing but he didn't test that well as a sergeant let's put him up let's let's make him a sergeant it went from that to now my my dad is commander he's putting his friend's son through the uh, rank of sergeant and in return, one day you do the same for my kid. So now we have a rank of people in the, sh- the police department that are like uh, chief, deputy chief, whatever, working the streets who are a bunch of house-, house mouses who never really went out there and run and gun or been to police that, that you know, uh, but now they're they since they know somebody that's a higher ranking individual in the department, they got put it meritoriously from sergeant to lieutenant to captain to commander, because there's individuals in our department that made all those rank through meritorious promotions are in these high level positions that were supposed to be reserved for the veteran run and gun officers who's out there for their troops. Now you're placing these individuals with no experience in that level in those positions and it's just, it just crumbles. And we, and I saw it and through, through my 10 years of being a, a cop there and I got sick and tired of it. And that's why I left. One of the reasons why I left.
0: Again, parallels. So my last place, and I've talked about this a lot, um, just to, to bring change. I'm not talking about it to talk yeah, shit, for sure. but our operations chief, the one who's in charge of everyone who's, you know, doing the job came up through dispatch. So he spent his career answering 911 calls. The chief chief came up through fire prevention. So checking fire extinguishers for extinguish dates and sprinklers. Neither of those two qualify you to be a ground level firefighter or overseeing the paramedic side. Um, And that complacency, we had the shooter that ended up going to the Pulse nightclub in Orlando came to our area first, which was Disney Springs. And this is public knowledge. And he's seen on camera. Uh, with a a stroller and under the the blanket on the stroller, a bunch of automatic weapons pushing it in. But when he gets there, there's some sort of shift change from the sheriff's office. And so he turns around, gets back in his car, drives up Orange Avenue, and then goes and murders a bunch of people in Pulse nightclub. I'm overseas when this happens. I come back expecting all kinds of, you know, new training equipment, things I'm going to have to catch up on. And they were like, what do you mean? like, you know, basically it didn't happen. So therefore we're okay. And that complacency again was, was one of the big things that eventually led to me going, all right, you know, I've spent five years trying to, to make a positive impact. I did train people. I did do fitness training. I did do all kinds of stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, left it better than I found it and then transitioned out. But that was such a giant near miss that, most refuse to even acknowledge the matter to learn from and change you had a pretty horrendous incident when it comes to the mercy hospital shooting so again you've got lapd talk to me about that we've got horror stories obviously parkland shooting here in florida with the so not responding ovalde recently with with the officers at least the the leadership side of the officers not engaging that a suspect so talk to me about not only the heroism of the the officer that you lost but also if any, how that complacency factored into that incident? It was huge.
1: It was lightning in a bottle. Uh, that luck happened for the Chicago Police Department because that could have turned 180 from what had happened. Uh, so w- in, in our department, we have something called the SORT vehicle. So on SWAT, it's called the you know, Special Operations Response Team. You drive around the city just to just in case something kicks off that you respond to an incident. And luckily at the time, that vehicle, our one of our sort vehicles was downtown. And instead of making a left towards John Hancock, which is the opposite of the Mercy Hospital, they decided to go right for whatever reason. So towards Mercy Hospital, not knowing there was an active shooter that 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 occurred. Um, so they were driving and they heard this whole incident kicked off about this individual. Uh, sh- uh, shot the doctor. An officer has been shot, uh, Officer Jimenez, who, who literally had uh, only a couple weeks, a couple months on the job. He's a brand new probationary officer. And I, he was at the hospital. I think he was dropping off paperwork or he was dropping off a suspect or something like that. But um, he was there when he got hit in the juggler. And, you know, he, he bled on scene um, and died in the hospital. But then again, that's one of those things. You could have two days on a job and you get killed, you could have, and there's stories of coppers who have 19 years on a job, the day of retirement, they get killed, right? You never know in your stand of career. And that's why you should always train and be the best that you can. You got to realize that. So back to the story, this whole, that whole emergency hospital kicked off. He, the the story behind that was, you know, the doctor that he was dating was his fiance and she, she, she called it off. She's like, I don't want to be with you anymore. We're calling this off. And he and he got mad about that. So he's like, "Okay, meet me outside in the vestibule. Meet me outside. Uh, give me back my ring, and and we'll call it quits." So no, she didn't know, but he had a pistol and he had a box of uh, rounds in his uh, pocket. So we can see it over the the camera. You know, they're they're talking. And I guess an argument ensued, and he killed her. He pulled out a pistol and he shot her to death right there. He stood over her body for a little bit. Then whatever he was processing, he decided to go inside the Mercy Hospital and start shooting people, right? And and, and, um, when that call kicked off, our sort vehicle, I was off that day, but my radio was on because I was downstairs in my basement and I was cleaning my gun. I was on call. And this call kicked off and that car luckily was heading towards Mercy House. So anyway, so they so our, it was our, our sniper and two other uh, guys in the t- uh, in, this, in the car heading towards that incident. And I we rewatched the uh, the, uh, the, uh, camera, the the camera, the body worn camera of the lieutenant. And this is going to fall back to training. Uh, the Chicago Police Department on after shooter they didn't know how to train their officers. And we, we saw it firsthand in the video because there was a bunch of cops standing in the hallway looking for directions. They didn't know to close in and and, and kill the enemy or, or form form a dime, diamond formation and go towards the gunfire and try to look and, and, and eliminate the threat. They, you know, of course, you fall back to your training. And, you know, I'm not going to blame those cops because they were never really trained in active shooting. So when, when our guys got there, we, uh, you know... The One thing that's great about uh, being on the SWAT team in Chicago is we train all the time. You know, we got a test to get on. Uh, They don't just accept anybody. So when you get on the SWAT team, we train all the time. And I wish we, you know, the the patrol level or or the tactical uh, guys on plain clothes had that level of training too. But when they got on scene, luckily, uh, one of the guys' name was Elvis. He was our sniper at the time. He responded with the lieutenant – and they closed in. And at that time they met with Jimenez. So it was him, Jimenez, the, the officer who got shot in the juggler and the Lieutenant were going towards the sound of gunfire. And um, when they, they started bounding towards the incident, uh, they it was a T intersection. So basically just imagine uh, a big T leading down a deep hallway and, and, and another, basically an eye. The shooter was on the other side of the hallway. They were bounding to the next level of cover. and And that incident, when they were bounding, that's when officer Jimenez got hit in the juggler and he, and he started to bleed out and luckily, uh, not luckily, but that guy who was the the SWAT guy, Elvis, you know, he was our sniper. He got down in a prone position and he dialed down his, his rifle uh, optic so that he's able to see the dot clearer in, in, in a, uh, you know, an ambient light uh, environment. And he shot the guy and took him out. If we weren't there on scene, I I, I firmly believe he would have, continue to to uh, try to kill as many people as possible because he had a bunch of freaking rounds in his pockets
0: so just to to underline so officer Jimenez without all the training and gear that a SWAT officer had still went towards gunfire absolutely amazing courage I mean truly tragic end but amazing courage
1: absolutely absolutely he he uh he could have cowered he didn't he he knew what what was right and he went he went he went towards it and god bless him
0: did that incident have any ripple effect of discussions improving training i mean like you said from a swat perspective you know you guys did what you had trained for yeah. but was there an analysis of the lack of training of other individuals in the hospital that could be
1: um elevated absolutely but like the department it always he's good for her, is they, they talk about it and they sit in their hands and uh, you know, our, our rifles that we had uh, like the guy who, the, the guy who uh, Elvis, who was the shooter who, you know, eliminated the threat uh, that our department rifles, that were issues were, were old. And there was a, and there was a couple of jams that happened from that incident that he tried to return fire, but the, the weapon jammed on him. And uh, after the incident, we they came in, they saw like, oh, a lot of these weapons are super old. Uh, they're like, yeah, we're going to get you guys new guns. Never happened. They talked about it. These guys are still having the same weapon system that, that they used during the emergency hospital incident. And that's just how the Chicago Police Department rolls. They like to talk about it. They like to put uh, smoke in mirrors, but they'll sit on their hands. Until some shit happens, then they're like, oh, crap. How can we do to fix this situation, right? Like the Laquan McDonald shooting, where um, you know that officer shot that uh, kid sixteen times. Uh, was was that kid in the wrong of w- why he was called there? Uh, when the officer right, absolutely. Could the officer be more trained to handle that situation? Absolutely. Yeah, it's just sad. It, it's 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 just sad.
0: I think this is the thing: is that when we're talking about funding, supporting, training, even rest and recovery, it's not focused at making just the police officer's life better. I mean, the goal is to obviously save lives on the streets as well. And another thing, which I talk about a lot when I'm interacting with law enforcement is where is the discussion on making the streets safer? Like we never hear anyone say, you know, this doesn't happen in Oslo, right? Or Lisbon, you know, or Reykjavik, Like there are countries around the world that don't have their children murdering each other because they wore blue or red, you know, or because they're slinging dope on every corner. So, you know, we always blame law enforcement. You're not doing enough. But culturally, where is the discussion on the mental health crisis? You know, we talk about guns. We're all about guns. You know, every time a classroom full of innocents is murdered. Everyone discards their feelings, like, "Were well, you pro-gun or anti-gun? Like, hold on, there's this human beings yeah, that I'm we dead. just killed. Are we not going to yeah. talk about that? Oh no, no, but that's that's you know, that's not my podium, you know. Yeah. So it's maddening. Um, but uh yeah, so by elevating training, as we said, you know, you walk out and it's, you know, whatever suspect that sadly has made the news because they were they were killed, maybe in that situation a well trained fit officer was able to de-escalate and it never have got to the point of lethal force. But you don't hear that in the conversation either. And then the same with the overtime sleep deprivation. Maybe if this officer hadn't worked two straight shifts, cognitively, he would have made a different decision. But you
1: never bring that into the conversation either. Absolutely. I, I agree with you on all ends. Um, go back, Going back to like what you're speaking about, about training again, because I think it's very important. We need to harp on this is because look at the Yuvali incident. That town was 20,000 people in the middle of nowhere in Texas that no one expected that to happen there. Right. But I guarantee you when those coppers were standing in that hallway, everybody was like, this is wrong. This is wrong. We need to do something, but no one had the confidence or the competent or the training to be on me. Let's go. Cause I guarantee you that's all it took is one copper in that stick to be on me. Let's move, you know? And people were like, yeah, let's go. Because I know a lot of those coppers there would have been like, they're thinking in the back of their head, this is wrong. So much time is passing. This is wrong. We need to do something. And it falls back to your your training, right? Uh, Training is huge. Training makes a big difference. And saving lives. let's, Let's forget about the lawsuit. Let's forget about all that shit, right? Just saving lives, doing your damn job. Why do we do this job? To save lives. I'm not doing this for a paycheck. We don't get paid enough for the, for what we do. Absolutely fucking not. We do it because it's honorable, because we believe in it, because we have purpose, because we we want to make a difference. So how are we going to be able to do that if we we don't get the training? are going to be like that cop, like, oh, my department doesn't give me this X amount of training, so too bad. I'm not going to train myself. I'm just going to do TikTok videos and dances and r- ridiculous things. You know, where does the professionalism come into play? You think because you raise your right hand, you wear that badge that it's all almighty. I always tell people, sometimes your uniform does not suffice. What what happens when you're challenged, when your uniform doesn't command respect anymore and that individual wants to fight you? Then, then what? Are you going to be like, oh, shit, I wish I could uh, want to more training. I wish I would have taken this seriously. And I, I hope I make it through this. Are you going to be that officer who's like, I'm ready? I'm I'm well-trained, you know, Uh, if you want to walk down this path, I'm going to walk down this path with you. And I'm going to do everything in my power to to make sure that I'm going to come out of this alive. My partner is going to come out of this alive, or the individuals that are involved in this incident, the innocent ones are going to come out alive and you're going to pay for what you did.
0: Absolutely. I mean, even the the conversation with the canine, um, I've had several canine handlers on the show, and there's been a pushback against the canine program too, Oof. and people are so short-sighted because those are non-lethal options. If you don't use the dog, then you use the gun. That's it. Yeah, That's yeah. your two. And more often than not, if you speak to Mike Gusby was one LAPD um, absolute legend when it comes to canine. He he can count the number of bites he's got on one hand. You know, yeah. it's a deterrent again. But we have this optic of oh, you know, no more tactical operating, you know, tactical gear for the police, and no more canines. Is like well. Ideally, yeah. Ideally, we can go back to the beat cop that's just walking around, you know, playing basketball with neighborhood kids. But there's areas at the moment that are absolute war zones and taking away tools that make it safer for the officers and the person that you're even pursuing is insanity. But this political, you know, fucking fairy tale bullshit that's happened the last few years, people don't realize that's making it even more dangerous for our children than it ever was before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Chicago doesn't have bite dogs. It's insane. Like we we've been on calls and I'm like, "Hey, you want to send in your dog?" They're like, "Oh, my dog's not a bite dog." You know, like I like you said there's tools to be used to 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 do our job more safe. But like you said it's political. It's all political. Uh for example, like ex- the explosive breaching program for for our SWAT teams. We we have explosive breaching capabilities, but they won't let us use it. Because they're like, oh, you're, you're blowing up the color, you know, you're know, you blowing up, you're going to use it to blow up the community or the, you know, they, they use this as a politicized thing. But then when you look at it, it's like, it's not that it's the most safest thing, because it's all math. But like, it's, like you said, it's all political. It's like a, a per- perception, right, of, of what it is, explosive breaching. Oh, I don't want you to use explosive breaching. You might be hurting the, you know the 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 community and whatnot, but no, it's the safest way to enter. What what happens when you when you can't I know we've been in incidents where the, our RAM doesn't work. That door is like shut. What other ways are we going to get in to the school, this home, if there's like a hostage situation and this dude's doing a countdown? Hey, I'm gonna kill her. I'm counting down right now or whatever, whatever, whatever he cues. and he has this door barricaded so well. Now, what are we, and, and the only tools they're giving us are a bunch of rams and we can't breach the door. How are you going to get in and do our job? But they don't care. You know what I mean? It's just, in the end of the day, they, they, they really don't care. They're just going to do what, just, just just what is enough? What is enough to check the box to say that, okay, they're, they're trained to this certain level. We're good to go. And that's it. And it's sad to see. And it was so frustrating so, so, so frustrating. And that's why I left. I was like, I'm not going to sit here and bitch and moan anymore and be like this. And And I got to a point where I hated going to work. It wasn't fulfilling for me anymore. And and I always, I wanted to be a 30 year cop. That was my, that was my passion. I wanted to retire on SWAT. I wanted to, you know, that was my end goal was being on SWAT and doing 30 years. And even on the teens, they tied their hands a lot. And it was so frustrating and you were wearing down the guys on these long SWAT jobs for like 14 hours. And you let the negotiator talk this guy ear out. Do you want to let us use gas? And by like hour 10, you're, you finally decide to pull, to turn off his power. Stuff like that is like, they, they don't care about, I I felt like towards the end, it's like, they don't care if you work doubles. They don't care if you're standing out there exhausting yourself, right? We're, they're going to let it play out because it's, uh, it's they, we, they don't want to make it a, a, a perception. And like we're trying to uh um end this quickly when there's many swat teams around the nation who have proven like as after a certain amount of time they're going to gas the building after a certain amount of time they're going to escalate because they have to so uh, it's just very very frustrating um, on my end
0: i want to hit one more area before we transition to your transition out um when you think of the city of chicago in the defund movement obviously your mayor was front and center and I think one of the least discussed elements of first responder mental health is organizational betrayal. You know, you have sworn, as you said, you've written that blank check. Um, you've sworn to be part of this tribe to uphold the laws that you're given to, um, you know, die if necessary to defend the people of the the city of Chicago. And then you get your legs cut off by the mayor. So through your eyes, not only, the result, as far as crime, but also the impact on the men and women you served alongside. Talk to me about the impact of that from inside the city of Chicago.
1: My last couple of years, there was a bunch of suicides because coppers had nobody to turn to. They took their lives, and and I, I, one hundred percent feel like it has to have to do with the lack of leadership uh, from our police department, the mayor, the DA. All that comes into place, the days off canceled, not having a time for the cops to recuperate to, to, cause we're all humans, right? People tend to think police officers are robots. We get beamed down from some magical planet and, and, you know, we put on this uniform and, and we're, we're this robot. We have no feelings. We have no emotions We we just go, oh, black, it's all black and white. No, these are citizens who live in the community, who wanted to do the job, raise their right hand to make a difference in their community. And when you don't have the backing and t- and, and you don't have the correct leadership to take care of your officers' well-being, mental health-wise, give them time off to be with their families, you know, because all these coppers, majority of them have girlfriends, boyfriends, wives, husband, kids. You know, how is it going to feel when daddy mommy have continuously days off canceled and you're missing your kids' birthdays? You can't go to their events. You can't go to holidays. How is it going to play on not only your own personal lives and 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 maybe your spouse's life too? Now you're you're leaving your spouse to tend to your to your your personal families while you're like, hey, honey, I'm sorry, I'm out here working the streets. My got my days off canceled again, and you have this this mayor spineless mayor who talks shit about the police, right? Anti-defund the police, but she'll have. She has, when I left, she had not only the mayor's detail guarding her home, but she had uh, her own private police squads that she pulled uh, to form her own unit, uh, doing patrol around her, her block, having set up unmarked vehicles, right? She has all this police protection on her property, but she's out here saying, oh, it's okay if they're destroying your property. There's there's insurance. There, it's going to take care of that. Oh, it's okay. And and she talks crap about the cops, but she uses all these cops to watch her home. She even had like a SWAT car sitting at her house, 24-7, guarding her house, home or not. You know, and and all this coming to play, the lack of days off uh days off, the 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 all this, yeah, it, it affects the cops. It affects them greatly. And I saw that. It's, they're like, they don't care about and what, what who did they have to turn to. A lot of them, like you said, like I stated before, try to turn to alcohol. That's just like a small band-aid and a gaping wound. And then they end up taking their lives. And I, and it was, there there's so many lives that was taken the last couple of years I was on. It was just disgusting that these officers needed help, but there was no one out there to help them.
0: Well, I think as well, I mean, that's worst case, you know, Human costs, which should be enough to make people change. This is what drives me crazy. But ah, oh, yeah, but you got to show the you know the the financial gain, which nauseates me because a lot of these people worship in holy buildings, and I'm pretty sure Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, whoever wouldn't have been like, yeah, people don't matter. Think about the bottom line. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure, you know. But um. It's also the retention. We're seeing this, you know, hiring crisis. Well, the other side of the hiring is retention, as you said. Retirees hanging up their gum belt mm-hmm. five, 10, 15 years prior to when they may have stayed. The you yeah. young people transitioning to other departments that actually support. I know, right, wrong, or indifferent. You know, our governor here, DeSantis, at the time was offering people massive bonuses that were leaving other states to come to Florida in our yeah. gain. You know, so. This organizational support, putting the standards back, investing in your people, putting training, getting the right manpower, staffing. Don't see them know, as a they... number. Yes, exactly. That that forges retention. You know, therefore, the person as you said that's pulling over your teenage son doesn't have two years now. He has twenty-two years or fifteen years, and hopefully, he or she has the experience to de-escalate, not have a hair trigger. And, you know, your your child gets to make it home safely. So there's so many elements of this that are so detrimental over and above the fear mongering. I mean, there was that one absolutely heartbreaking video of the retired police chief. I think it was in L.A. that was executed on the sidewalk during one of the riots. You know, I mean, this this is what happens mm-hmm. when you entice the shit bags of the world to to rise up and you empower them. And you get all these stores now where they're beating up the clerks and stealing all their stuff because they know they're not going to get arrested. You know, 95 plus percent of the population are good fucking people. And we don't want that. And we support our first responders. You know, we support our military. Absolutely hold the ones that fuck up accountable, but also hold the organization. If that fuck up is partly, you know, systemic, then hold the head of that organization responsible. If they've been well trained and they've gone against protocol, then you just, you know, send the individual to prison. But support the rest of them. Don't jump on some fucking racial or political bandwagon because one person who, let's be honest, wasn't a fucking angel in the first place, resisted arrest and then X happened. And I'm not talking about the the cases where the police officer was completely wrong, but the gray area or the justified ones where they still riot and still talk shit about the police, those people need to be locked up because they're basically enticing riots, whether it's the fucking... God, what was it called when they uh, when they went into the government building? I forget the term. Um,
1: oh, the insurrection?
0: The insurrection, exactly. That, I mean, you know, all of these, it's all the same thing. If you are inciting results in the loss of human life, you yourself should be fucking held accountable as well, whether you're the mayor of Chicago, whether you're a you know so-called president, whatever it is. If you're inciting hate and division and anger versus community, Then we got to remember it's not just the person in the fucking uniform. Follow the the chain all the way to the
1: top as well. Absolutely, Um, having the back of the officers is huge. Having their morale is huge. Instead of jumping uh, to conclusions immediately and jumping uh, on the news and saying, "Yeah, I don't believe what this officer did," was let the let 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 the the letter of the law, the investigation happen before we the facts gets gets gathered before we start jumping to conclusions that this officer or this situation was right off bat wrong. Right. And we've seen that. And that's what happens that that trickle effect. And it's it's been huge in Chicago. I mean, the magnificent mile, the mag mile down Michigan Avenue used to be a beautiful place. There's so many stores that are exiting like the water tower, like the owner of the water tower went to the city and said, here's the keys back to the water tower. We don't want it anymore. Because crime is running amok. Cops are second-guessing themselves. There's no chase policy. There's no proactive policing anymore. There's just going to, a lot of these cops are like, oh, you know what? Is that If that's what you want from me, fine. I'm just going to sit in my squad car. I'm going to drink my coffee. And I'm just going to wait for my calls. I'm not going to drive around. I'm not going to look for criminals. I'm not going to do my job because it's not worth it anymore. And that's what type of uh, culture you're breeding. Like when they, there's many instances where, in Chicago, there's this, this no chase policy is huge and the criminals knows it, right? So let's say if uh you see the guys speeding and you try to pull them over and you turn on your lights and your sirens, you go over the air, you let dispatch, you know, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm trying to pull this vehicle over. It's not pulling over. And they're like, okay, what speed are you going? And then the supervisors come and say, terminate the pursuit. And you literally have have to turn, turn off your lights, pull to the side of the, the street that you said you stopped on. The sergeant or the supervisor comes on scene, looks at you, logs you into his thing, that shows that, okay, this officer stopped. And what that does is criminals aren't stupid. So they know that. They're like, oh, okay. So they, they, there's a bunch of TikTok videos out there of dudes carrying um, pistols with lasers on it with these extended mags, driving, blowing lights, and they're filming it under their. View mirror just see the blue and white lights are on, and it continue driving. And it turns off, and they continue driving. They just laugh because they know. So now there's no fear anymore from the from the from the uh, the criminals, and, so, and they know that they're and they're using it to their advantage. And they're seeing like these cops are not doing their job. They're they're seeing cops standing by while places are getting looted because the supervisors telling them to stand by because it's only uh, uh, um property, and they see this and. And they, you know, and they, all these, all these kids, all these, you know, they call it uh, gatherings because the new mayor doesn't want to call it a riot when they're going downtown and they're destroying shit, jumping on cars and, and breaking stuff and, 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 you know, violence to happening, they don't call it a riot. It's, 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 it's a big gathering and, and they, there's no respect for the, the law anymore. And so these kids, they know that they're like twerking on these cops and they just stand by, they just stand by and it's sad. And you're absolutely right, James. Uh, I looked at the retirement. Uh, so we, I get sent this magazine from, from the police department uh, every month and it shows the retirees and it shows how many years they have on when they retire. Now it's like 20, 21, 19. There's one that's like 10. There's, you know, 22. You, back in the days, you had to pry a copper from his job. You always see like 29 in a day, 29 in a day, 30 years, 34 years because they love what they did. Those things. Time or few and gone. And you're losing all this experience from all these experienced coppers. They're saying, This is not worth it anymore. I'm just going to do my bare minimum to get my pension and I'm going to go do something else. Or there's even cops like me where it's like 10 years is enough. It's not worth it anymore. I'm going to go do something else. And it's sad. And like you said, it plays hand in hand, right? You have all these experienced cops leaving. You have all these new people who are not up to standard, but they're hiring them anyways because they need bodies come in and, and be the next uh, generation of police officers. What's going to, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? It's crazy.
0: It is. It is. Well, speaking of your transition, then what was the, the final straw for you? And let's talk about your transition into we go home.
1: Yeah. My, the final straw was all that, James, just a just accumulation of a lack of leadership, lack of, uh, you know, not treating us like a number days off canceled all that. I just got sick and tired of it and that was the last straw. and I was like, you know what I'm I'm done uh be, being the police I I like you know, I, that's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to make a difference and I felt like I could make a bigger impact if we go home in a broader spectrum and that's when I decided like like what you're doing with with your podcast is that you felt like you can make a bigger change on the outside than inside and that's how I felt. And that's and that's the message we wanted to push here with We Go Home. It's accumulation of my career, of my experience, of seeing death, of seeing of losing brothers, of see of seeing lives lost, and the seriousness of this job. And that's what I, I wanted to push out there to the to to the uh, the community of firefighters, police, first responders, military personnel. That this job is inherently dangerous. Every single day we go to, we don't know if we're going to come back home. It's up to us to be the best that we can because we can't be jaded. We can't have that. Oh, I've been a job for 10 years and I'm good type of attitude. You got to come in, in this job every single day prepared. And that's the message we want to push that we go home message. Cause every time before we hit the uh, warrant, you know, at the end, the lieutenant was like, no matter what we do, we, we're, we're going to make it home, you know, and it was like echoed throughout. And it was, it was huge for me. And that's what I want to do because everybody in this in this service in this profession has mothers, brothers, sisters, wives, kids. They all want to come home to them. So let's be a professional and do the job to your best ability, so you can bring home your brothers and sisters through your left and right. That you bring home the people that uh, that you swore to protect. That when adverse is when adversity comes and when adversity strikes, it's not if but when. Are you going to be ready for it? Or you just going to be another static, another example? And I say that a lot. You know, set the example. Don't be the example. And that, and that's the message we wanted to push when we go home. Is beyond selling supplements. Is beyond selling apparel. It's it's the mindset of what it takes to be a professional, and how serious this, these these career paths are.
0: Talk to me about the entrepreneurial side of it. When you leave a first responder profession, you're giving. What used to be you giving up actual benefits and security now I would argue somewhat of a facade of benefits and security because <laughs> in my career, you know the the pension got cut, the healthcare was almost non-existent. Um, actually, it was when we retired we got zero healthcare. Um, so that was kind of a carrot on the stick. But anyway, regardless, though, you were guaranteed a paycheck. You know, you had healthcare while you were in at least. It's a brave jump to go out into into the world in general but certainly to say i'm going to create something
1: myself so what was that journey like for you scary as shit and it's still scary it's the scariest thing it's the hardest thing i've ever done in my career to this point being a ranger joining on swat it's it like you said it's it is dangerous right we we understand the risks but at the end of the day there's a safety net you get two paychecks a month you get a pension you get insurance, you know, that's it's no matter what you could be the, you could be the top dog cop, or you could be a, a piece of shit one that doesn't just, just answer his calls. You're, you're getting paid the same, right? There's, and there's this shared suffering when you're in that type of uh, unit environment. Cause back when I was on a SWAT team, we bitch and moan, but we had each other to bitch and moan about now when we're transitioning to entrepreneurship, there's no one to bitch and moan about too. All, all the weight and everything that we carry is on our own backs, you know, but I'm a firm believer in chasing my dreams. I'm the firm believer of um, not peaking, not plateauing, oh climb. And being a being a SWAT cop isn't challenging to me anymore. You know, I reached the pinnacle. I, I, was a, I was a shield guy on my team. I was a point guy on my team. I knew my profession very well. I knew my craft very well. I was very good at what I did, uh, making split second decisions and whatnot, but I didn't feel challenged anymore. This was the next mountain that challenged me. And I was like, I looked at it. I was like, I can sit here and be like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm comfortable where I'm at. I'm just going to do, we go home as a side gig, or I'm going to go all in and jump into the deep end and really get after it. And and, and I did. I was like, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I want to make a difference. I want to, I want to take this message and affect change in so many people's lives, but I can't do it if I'm only putting half in. Of when I'm on the police job, because uh, the, the uh, being a police officer took the majority of, of my energy. I was like, if I really want this to be something, if I really wanted to really change the lives of the people that we are were changing, I need to go all in. And this is when I decided I, I did. I was like, fuck it. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to sit here and talk about it. I don't want to die with regrets. I don't want to wait until uh, I don't want to suffer through my police career and finish it up and then look back and like, what if? Right. I don't want to live my life. What if?
0: Now, what about the documentary? I mean, you, I just literally, as I said at the beginning, I've just finished watching it right before this interview. It's beautifully shot. It tells a powerful story. Most people, though, you know, that's, that's, if a crew comes to you with money ideas, you know, then, then it's going to be easier. But to be part of that and to be a driving force of that, I would say was quite an undertaking. So talk to me about, you know, that experience and then let people know where they can find it.
1: Yeah, uh, the win was something I was really hesitant in doing. You know, uh, Sean Spencer came, uh, who did Ranger, which was was a powerful documentary about, uh, you know, uh, a guy who was just a regular guy who just wanted to do the right thing, joined the Ranger Regiment, and he talked about his time in war. And I saw that documentary. I was like, oh, this is super powerful. And he was like, hey, Sean's like, hey, I want to do a documentary about your life. I'm like, who wants to hear about my life? You know, I was like. I don't know. I was, I was like, I'll think about it. You know, I, I was really iffy about it because I don't like to put myself out there like that. I didn't feel like you know I wanted to make a message. Like I was like, Sean, I, I want to do it, but I don't want to make this message about me. Like, oh, look at me. And he's like, it's not about you, man. I think it's a, pow- a more powerful story beyond that. It's a power. It's a story about resilience of not quitting, of 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 being placed in in, in any environment and, and thriving. Right? It's on the individual. And I think a lot of people need to hear the story. And so I decided like, you know what, if it, if, if this is going to change a lot of people's lives to help them for the better, when if they're struggling through what they're going through and they, they want to quit their path, then I'm going to do it. And that's why we decided to put the story together and put it out there so that people can watch it and be like, hey, look, life is going to slap your ass, like it or not. It's going to beat your ass. It's going to push you down. But are you going to quit? Right? That That's what matters. Everybody is going to be, everybody faces adversity in life. No one's immune to adversity. I don't care if, if you're born in the richest family to the poorest family, you're going to face adversity in your life and how you deal with that adversity and how you are as an individual is really going to dictate how the future that you're going to have. And I, I want that message to resonate with everybody that, Hey, you don't have to be raised in a rich family for you to do Extraordinary things. It's on you that for you to not quit and, and and have purpose and drive through it and see it through, and that that and that's when we decided to do it. And, and you know he shot it, and God bless him. And I, I just felt like it, it just, the story that just needed to be heard, not just in that side of things, but just in in general the, the humanization of an individual in in going to war, working the streets of you know, as a cop. So they could show people that, Hey, we're not robots. We're human beings, right? We're, we just, we just want to do the right thing and we just want to help people. And that's what, and that's why we do what we do because we damn well do not get paid enough. So that's why we did it. And yeah, it's, it's, it's on Amazon. You can find it's my last name. It's N G U Y E N. Um people who watched it said that, that it really helped them a lot. And I, I hope, that you guys who watch this find some kind of inspiration from it so that it can help you through whatever journey that you're going through.
0: What I really found important, and I say this only because you don't see it many places, is just the raw frustration of someone who took their job really seriously, who wanted to be the best version of themselves. But like so many people listening, found themselves in, you know, in toxic environments. And of course, you know, like they said, the immigration story is incredibly powerful. Like you said, the overcoming adversity and the self-belief. But I think it's going to be, to be completely blunt, a lot of first responders and people in other professions are going to go, that's me. Because I know so many great firefighters, police officers, soldiers, paramedics, doctors, nurses that are amazing despite the environment. And I know how detrimental that is to their spiritual mental health. So that was one thing as a responder and having been through, you know, highs and lows myself that I really kind of resonated with. It was just, here's another one. Here's another guy who fucking gets it, who understands why we put the uniform on, whose fire still burns in their heart. And then like me, ultimately transitioned out because the head was hurting so much from banging it against a brick wall. But that in itself is also a resilient story because you're like, okay, I'm still going to serve. What does that look like now? How can I make a bigger difference from outside these parameters without these handcuffs that I've had slapped on me? So that's another kind of different perspective for me that, that I think is so valuable for the documentary for a lot of people listening.
1: Yes, sir. I, you know, you're not alone out there. You know, there, there's like you stated, there's many. Uh, great individuals who want to do the right thing and they're just frustrated. And that's the one thing I, I, the story I wanted to tell, I, it's not a story of bashing the Chicago police department, but it's just a story of what happens when you're placed in an environment, a political environment or lack of leadership and lack of, of, of direction for a organization. What, ha, what, what really happens from the, the the foot soldiers, right? It's, it's not about, it's not about, uh the, the leadership, the guys are like deputy chief and chief. They're great. I mean, they got drivers. They're making two hundred something. They, they don't have anything to worry about. What about the guys who are working the beat? What about those guys and gals? They have to answer the calls day in day out. Knowing they don't have the backup from the, from their bosses or they don't have the training, but they have to go out there and still do their jobs. How frustrated are they? And you know that's and I, that's one thing I want people when they watch the document to realize what is going on in these big metropolitan cities. It's happening in New York. It's happening in Seattle. It's it's unfortunate. It's happening in L.A. now. It's happening into a lot of places, and that that's that was one of my driving factors of why I wanted to make this documentary to sh- to let people know what the hell is really going on, and from from a cop's view, fourteen years.
0: Yeah, well, it's an important perspective, and like I said, with the two part question on war same thing you know we need to hear from the actual people on the streets not the pundits on fox and cnn or whichever politician is looking to get elected next but the actual people that are out there doing the job you know getting freaking blood on their uniform on a a daily basis to protect the people that we serve so i thought it was amazing now what about we go
1: home where can people find that uh yeah you can find us on instagram it's uh we go home uh you can our website is a We Go Home Supps S U P P S, or you can find us on Facebook We Go Home Official. So that's where we're located. This job is not dead. It's still an honorable job. There's still you're still needed. There's still a need for warriors to be out there to pick up the mantle. Right? Somebody has to stop evil. Evil is here. You know it's never going to go away. Somebody has to face it. So let it be you. Be somebody. Be a professional. And that's the message we we want to push on our, our our Instagram page. It's like you're that this warrior spirit, this warrior ethos, is still alive and strong. Don't let it die, because you're, you're you are needed out there. Because you've raised your right hand to to you swore an oath. Live up to that oath. Don't be jaded. People are counting on you. So absolutely. Well, Chung, I want to say thank you so much.
0: It's been amazing to listen to your story. Obviously, your origin story is pretty powerful, but then your perspective as a young man and the positive interaction with PD—you know, the the highs of your career, some of the lows—but I think it's it's not bitching; it's advocating for the people that are still in uniform that are so frustrated that feel unsupported, um, and we have to give them a voice. And it may not sound like a a positive conversation, but it is because we're dragging this out of the shadows for the people that are serving to advocate for the environment that allows them to thrive. And I think anyone who leaves their family and and again, so much respect for the families themselves that are holding the line while we're, you know, protecting strangers. They deserve every ounce of support and the people that we serve deserve the best version of a cop, a firefighter, a paramedic that, that they can get as well. So I want to thank you so much for telling us your story today and being so generous with your time coming on the Behind the Shield podcast.
1: It was a pleasure, James. I appreciate you inviting me on and uh, I appreciate this. And I, you know, last message to all you guys who all you listeners, just keep the good fight. You're needed. You're needed more than ever especially with what's going on nowadays you 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 are definitely needed don't don't ever lose that purpose don't ever forget your why and why you started